Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. When the United States was founded in 1776, the citizens didn't think of themselves as Americans. They were New Yorkers or Virginians or Pennsylvanians. It was decades later that the seeds of American nationalism, identifying with one's own nation and supporting its broader interests, began to take root. But what kind of nationalism would Americans embrace? The state-focused and racist nationalism of Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, or the belief that the U.S. Constitution made all Americans one nation indivisible, which Daniel Webster and others espoused. In his new book, called Indivisible, historian and law professor Joel Richard Paul tells the fascinating story of how Webster, a young New Hampshire attorney turned politician, rose to national prominence through his powerful oratory and unwavering belief in the United States and captured the national imagination. As the greatest orator of his age, he saw his speeches and writings published widely, and his stirring rhetoric convinced Americans to see themselves differently as a nation bound together by a government of laws, not parochial interest. He had great influence on future leaders, including Abraham Lincoln. Joel Richard Paul is professor of law at the University of California Hastings Law School in San Francisco, where he teaches constitutional law, international economic law, and foreign relations law. He's a former dean of global programs there. He's author previously of Without Precedent, Chief Justice John Marshall and His Times, and Unlikely Allies, How a Merchant, a Playwright, and a Spy Saved the American Revolution. Uh, Joel Richard Paul, thank you for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me, Tom. Uh, I want to start with something uh, somewhat unrelated. Um, this <laughs> stood out to me. Uh, you've turned Unlikely Allies into a musical. I, I have, yes. <laughs> Are you interested in uh, in losing a lot of money on Broadway? <laughs> Is that what happened? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, nothing nothing happened. Unfortunately, we, we um, uh, had a reading in New York that was very successful, but it was right before the pandemic, and so... Um, Productions kind of dried up at that point, but we'll see what happens to it. Yeah, I noticed on YouTube you can. Uh, did you do a recording? There's a you, you can you can listen to some music. I think yes. If you if you go to YouTube uh, and look at Unlikely Allies, the musical, you can listen to some of the music from from the show. Um, we were it was uh, we had a great Broadway cast, um, a number of, of uh, folks who um, had been in Tony Award musicals uh, volunteered their time. And um, we had about 200 people coming to the reading in New York City. It was a lot of fun. It was really, it was really a very exciting experience for me. And I had never written lyrics before, so it was a new experience. But um, uh, we'll see what happens to it. Yeah, so that's, it broadens your horizons there, you know, constitutional scholar, author, and lyricist now. Um, yeah, well, if the law thing doesn't work out for me, I've always got a new career now. <laughs> yeah, you got a new career, that's right. Um, so, Unlikely Allies, also a, a book on uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, right? So, uh, why, uh, why a Daniel Webster book at this point? Well, as you said, I, I teach constitutional law. Daniel Webster was the foremost advocate before the Supreme Court. He probably argued and won more cases before the Supreme Court than any anyone else in, in American history. Um, he had about 150 cases before the court at a time when the court didn't have such a large docket. And he was um, very influential in some of the important decisions of the John Marshall Court. Uh, cases like uh, the great steamboat case, uh, Gibbons versus Ogden, or McCulloch versus Maryland, that some of your listeners may, may be familiar with, cases that really sort of defined the scope of federal power. And um, Webster influenced the court, and he was also influenced by the court itself. Um, 
perhaps most famously, Webster argued the Dartmouth College case before the Supreme Court, and it was said that the, the justices themselves cried, they wept, when, when uh, Webster got up to speak because he was so eloquent. That's, I think, what we remember about him, right, is his oratory. Yes, his oratory was really, um, it was just exceptional. He was, he was reputed to be, at that time, the greatest orator in the English language, uh, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. Um, and there were very few people in American history um, before or since Webster who could possibly do what Webster did. Webster could stand up and speak uh, extemporaneously for four to six hours without notes. And his audiences were absolutely mesmerized. I mean, I, I can't imagine listening to anyone longer than about 60 minutes. But, but listening to Webster, people described the experience as being transported. Um, they, um, they'd never seen anything like this before. And he uh, had a tremendous influence on, the, on people like Lincoln, and, and Lincoln saw him as a role model uh, in his own oratory. But Webster's oratory vastly, vastly overshadowed Lincoln's. Mm-hmm. Um, he, when he went to uh, Britain to, um, on, on vacation, he, was, he took a, a very long sabbatical from, from the Senate, uh, where he was a senator from Massachusetts, uh, he went. He went to Britain to to speak, and and he was all of the great figures in uh, British politics at the time and British government uh, wanted to meet him. Uh, people like uh, William Wordsworth and Hartley Coleridge and John Kenyon, um, Henry Sargent, Charles Dickens, uh, Lord Melbourne, uh, the Duke of Wellington, Thomas Thomas Carlyle referred to him as the the notable list of all of your notabilities in America. Mm. Um, and, and these people were just overwhelmed by him. Uh, Queen Victoria invited him to dinner twice. Uh, the King of France, not to be outdone, um, Louis-Philippe invited him to come to Versailles. And Louis-Philippe was so uh, impressed by Webster and by Webster's reputation as a great orator that he commissioned this enormous painting, this life-size painting of Webster giving one of his most famous speeches on, on the floor of the Senate. That was the kind of reputation he had as a great orator. Mm. And this was, uh, this was the main tool of the trade, wasn't it? Uh, you know, yeah, eloquence, oratory. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, in the days before uh, other forms of entertainment like television or... or uh, YouTube, people would go and they'd, they'd bring a picnic lunch and they'd take the family and they'd sit there for hours listening to orators. And people had a lot of, um, people developed, I think, <clears throat> uh, strong judgments about the quality of people's oratory. Um, Webster had the capacity, not just to be extraordinarily eloquent, and, uh, but also he had a remarkable voice. He could speak in the open air to crowds of tens of thousands of people and be heard by people at the farthest reaches of the crowd. People described him um, as, as having the voice of a, of a great church organ. Uh, and he just could, could just somehow manage to, to be heard in enormous crowds of people, which was a, a, 
an important quality at the time without amplification. And that was not true, for example, of Lincoln, who had a kind of squeaky, high-pitched voice that wasn't uh, particularly audible in large crowds. Mm. I was uh, very interested. Uh, you, you wrote about Thomas Jefferson. He, he was not blessed with a, a booming voice either, right? And, no, and he, he didn't like speaking before crowds either, so he decided that he would give his, it, it, when he gave his State of the Union addresses, he didn't give them in person. He would simply send his speeches to Congress to mm-hmm. be read for him. Plus, the, plus uh, I'm kind of diverging here. We'll get back to, to Webster, but uh, Jefferson, you write, was he kind of uh, froze up in public a little bit. Um, yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't a people person. He was, you know, he was bookish. Uh, he was introverted. Um, he was a bit of a snob um, and, and an intellectual. Uh, he was not somebody who enjoyed the kind of backslapping politics um, that um, other politicians enjoyed. Webster wasn't much of like that either. Webster was also a kind of. Um, Somewhat remote figure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, people described, people referred to him as godlike Daniel, and he was godlike both because of his enormous uh, eloquence, but also because he was someone who was um, kind of above the crowd. I want to get into this idea, like a central idea of the book about how the uh, United States became a nation, right? Uh, I want to read this uh, from the introduction. Uh, This is uh, Joel Richard Powell from his new book, Indivisible. It was not a foregone conclusion that the Union would form a nation. And you quote uh, Massachusetts Congressman Fisher Ames, uh, who said, Our country is too big for union, too sordid for patriotism, too democratic for liberty. Um, So uh, not a foregone conclusion that uh, the Union would form a nation. It did, however, and there were competing ideas, right, about what kind of nation it should Yes, very much so. So you had, first of all, you had people like uh, John C. Calhoun, uh, who thought that the Constitution was simply a compact among the states, and the states were free to nullify federal law or to secede at will. Uh, Calhoun believed in kind of regional nationalism, that the South was sort of a, 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 had its own sort of national identity distinct from the rest of the country. Um, and uh, uh, Henry Clay, who um, thought that the nation might develop from the development of a national market. And so he was interested in building infrastructure, bridges and canals and roads that would knit the country together more closely. That kind of commercial nationalism um, was distinct from, for example, what John Quincy Adams was arguing for, which was a kind of uh, territorial nationalism. Adams believed that uh, somehow um, we had been endowed with this vast continent, and that um, it was unfortunate that there were other people occupying it at the time, uh, and the indigenous tribes um, just sort of had to get out of our way so that uh, we could progress, and that it would be better for for humankind uh, for us to simply push out of the way the indigenous tribes and the Mexicans who had lived here for centuries and take the whole territory for ourselves. And then most significant of all, you have Andrew Jackson and and Jackson's kind of populist, racist nationalism uh, really kind of took hold in the country and um, might have defined us as a country. Jackson believed that 
essentially this was a country for white Europeans, and that was all. And he had very little regard for the indigenous tribes, for the enslaved African Americans, uh, or for Mexicans who were living here. And it was against that that Daniel Webster pushed forward his ideas of nationalism, which were based on our Constitution. Webster's constitutional nationalism was premised on the idea that the Constitution itself made us all a nation, regardless of our race or our region of the country, our ethnicity, our faith. We were all Americans, and that we were, uh, that the Constitution was the organic expression of the will of the people, so that we, we were bound together in perpetuity. We had no, states were not free to withdraw from the Union. And it was Webster's idea of constitutional nationalism that ultimately triumphed and defined who we are as a nation. Um, of course, this, is, uh, this resonates deeply with our times, right? Um, you, you write yes. in the book, you define populism, once again, uh, this is on the rise, right? Uh, maybe define for me populism, and this was tied, as you said, to Andrew Jackson's view, I think. Right. Well, you know, um, we sometimes think of populists as being Democrats, as being democratic. Um, but in fact, populism is the opposite of democracy. Um, populists believe that they themselves express the will of the people, that they're sort of the instrument of the people, the voice of the people. And therefore, um, they argue that they don't really need to participate in uh, democratic institutions, in democratic processes. They can ignore um, whatever constitutional structures you have, because they are really the only legitimate voice for the people. And that is why populists so often turn into autocrats uh, and show disrespect for our democratic institutions. Um, and so the rise of populism, which is, uh, I think, an international phenomenon right now, um, is a deeply troubling one. Populists gain power by uh, asserting that there is um, there's an enemy out there. And the enemy is typically the cultural elite uh, or the financial elite or some particular ethnic group of persons. And by sort of postulating that it's, it's us against them, the populists succeed in gathering together a majority of votes. But ultimately, populism ends badly, um, as it has throughout the world. Um, it ends in um, dictatorship, and it ends in autocrats trying desperately to hold on to power by flaunting the law. So how did Webster's version win out that you know, might provide hope for our times? Yes. So what Webster, what Webster did um, uh, was to give these you know, fabulous speeches. I mean, he, he, was, uh, uh, he would give a speech, um, and the, there were people in the audience who would transcribe every word that he spoke and then republish it in the newspapers all over the country. People published uh, booklets of Webster speeches. And these speeches would run sometimes 60 to 70 pages, published pages. I, I, I've unfortunately read them. <laughs> <laughs> and and they're, they're, they're quite long. They're very eloquent. Um, and they're very dense. Uh, and, and, and these speeches became sort of popular reading for people. 
uh, in the in the uh, schools at the time, you had readers. Uh, the two most prominent readers being the McGuffey reader and the Pierpont reader. Um, these readers were the sort of the basic books that students would use to learn to read uh, and to practice rhetoric. And so students would be required to stand up in class and recite things from the books. Well, the books tried to instill a sense of nationalism and national identity in people. And they did so by having excerpts of Webster's speeches. So students would memorize Webster's speeches and have to stand up and recite them in class. And this, and this is a generation of people from about 1830 to the early 1900s. Um, generations of people were required to learn these speeches. So by 1850, for example, there were over 50 million readers in the United States with Webster's speeches in them. The population of the United States was considerably less than 50 million. So there, virtually every literate person in America had read Webster's speeches and memorized them. When Lincoln stands up and says that we're a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, Everybody in his audience knows that he's simply quoting Webster. He doesn't have to say, I'm quoting Daniel Webster, because everyone in the audience has read Daniel Webster and knows that Daniel Webster said that first. So that's the kind of influence Webster had. The generation of men that went to fight in the Civil War to preserve our union, that generation of men had all read and memorized Webster's speeches, and they were fully indoctrinated in the idea that the Constitution made us all one nation. Hmm. So, so now I'm uh, you know, drawing parallel today and getting a little depressed. Uh, you, you, today you'd have to put it in 140 characters, wouldn't you? We're such short attention spans <laughs> we have. But... Uh, it is a little bit depressing. It's, it's harder today, on the other hand, I suppose you could say. Um, we have many more uh, outlets for um, expressing ideas, for reaching people. Um, uh, it's unfortunate today that we've sort of dumbed down our politics to the point where 140 characters is the most you can, you can express. But, you know, there are other forms of media as well. Um, I think the important thing about Webster is that, you know, the, the, it shows that the influence of one person who is willing to stand up and speak the truth. And, and, and inspiring people a sense of history and respect for what this country represents. I mean, Webster, Webster had to push back against a lot of opposition, and he did so by appealing to people's sense of history. He talked about the importance of what our framers believed in, even if our framers weren't perfect, even if they were not uh, godlike themselves. They were people who had who had a dream, who had who who made a promise in the Constitution of a better nation for all of us, and that's what Webster tried to appeal to in people. He appealed to our better angels, um, and that's what made the difference. Well, let's uh, take a break. We'll come back much more to talk about the new book uh, from Joel Richard Paul is Indivisible: Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism, and we'll have more following this break. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Joel Richard Paul, author of several books. The latest is Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. Interesting books out now. We're talking about it uh, right now on the program. Um, so I think we have a hard time conceptualizing, you know, life in many facets as it was, you know, in the past. Um, maybe paint a picture for us. We, we have a hard time... In, uh, Envisioning what it meant before uh, this idea of a of American America as a nation took hold, and you say that took place uh, took hold somewhere after the War of eighteen twelve. So before that, what would the average American? Uh, how would they have thought of themselves? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So when the republic was first formed. Um, uh, we really didn't have a sense of who we were as an American. Uh, in uh, 1782, uh, the French writer Crevecoeur, uh, in his uh, Letters of the American Farmer, uh, he, he asked the question famously, um, what is an American then? And it was a legitimate question. Being an American was really more of a theory. Uh, it was a it was a kind of concept rather than a reality because, you know, you were born in Virginia. You probably spent your whole life living within a 20-mile radius or less. Um, you married and see people in the same community. Uh, you didn't know anything about New York. You had no reason to go to New York. Um, you thought of yourself as a Virginian. Uh, in the War of 1812, when the British burned Washington, D.C., um, folks in Alexandria, Virginia, which is just across the river from Washington, watched kind of indifferently as the capital burned, because as far as they were concerned, that wasn't their capital. Their capital was in Richmond. They didn't have any identification. I'm sorry, not in Richmond. It was in the... Uh, yes, it was in Richmond at the time. Um, uh, they didn't have any reason to care about what happened in Washington. It was a foreign country as far as they were concerned. So the people in the United States just didn't see themselves that way. Uh, and, uh, and that really, it took about 50 years before Webster's ideas of constitutional nationalism really took hold. And uh, up until that point in time, we were sort of more, I would say, like the European Union. You know, people are Italians, or people are French, or people are German. And being European is a concept, it's an idea. Not everyone identifies themselves as a European, because they think of themselves more as a, a national of a, of a different country, which has a different culture. And that's how the United States felt, I think, uh, in 1800. So bound up, I think, in Webster's vision, which you say, you know, one, and I think we do, we all agree uh, with that. Uh, at least, maybe, you know, it's it's not a certain thing this will win in the future, right? But um, but this constitutional nationalism, it's bound up in, in an ideal, right? American identity is an ideal. America is an idea, and that has been very inspiring, not only to Americans but to to, to many around the world. Absolutely, absolutely. You know. Um, we were the first to have, uh, well, we were the second, actually, to have a, a written constitution. The Dutch were before us. But, but we, we were the first people, we, our constitution is the oldest, our, our, the, we, we, we inspired the rest of the world. The rest of the world f- followed our example. Um, and uh, it's, 
it's sort of tragic I, I, for me personally as a constitutional law professor to see people today really have such little respect um, for the, the, what the Constitution is, what, it, what it's supposed to be. Um, and it's been turned into a kind of... Um, it's been turned into something that it's not. People talk about uh, strict constitutionalism, or uh, they talk about the Constitution as if it were a straitjacket. The Constitution wasn't a straitjacket. It never was a straitjacket. It certainly wasn't to John Marshall, uh, who was our fourth Chief Justice, made it clear that the Constitution instead was a kind of vehicle. Um, it was it was a way of moving the country forward, of helping the country to progress uh, in a direction uh, of of unity, um, uh, and and that is the idea of the Constitution. I think that is perhaps now threatened uh, by some of our politics. And it seems like uh, some, as I was reading uh, through the book, some of the competing ideas, right? Um, it seems like some in, in the nation now are going back to those. America is land. America is the economy. America is the, you know, the, the flag. You know, even some are promoting blood and soil, that sort of thing. Right, right. Uh, and, and there seems to be, um, again, an idea which... Um, I think uh, is closely associated with Andrew Jackson of um, uh, a, a kind of um, uh, an attitude. Uh, this is the populism again, a populist attitude of um, uh, anti-intellectualism, anti-elitism, um, uh, an attempt to try to um, to try to paint some people and, and, and some ethnic groups as somehow enemies uh, of our country, uh, to uh, adopt an, an attitude that the United States is meant to be exclusive or exclusionary to keep people out of our country, uh, a sense that the government is somehow the problem, uh, that we need to go in, and Andrew Jackson famously said, we need to clean out the Augean stables, um, by which he meant to, to drain the swamp in Washington. Uh, he famously campaigned on the idea that he had been cheated out of the presidency in 1824 based on a corrupt bargain, which never took place. Um, uh, he appealed to the uh, anger of uh, rural uh, uh, voters um, uh, feeling left out. Um, and as president, he tried to concentrate power in the presidency. He had very little patience with the democratic process. Uh, he attacked government bureaucrats, fired hundreds and hundreds of uh, perfectly competent government bureaucrats and replaced them with his own incompetent cronies, some of whom were very corrupt. Um, and he was an incurious, impulsive, insecure, and arrogant autocrat. Uh, with a violent temper, and if that sounds familiar to anyone, um, well, so be it. But but that's you know that parallel um, uh, is what's so troubling, I think, today. Mm. I want to have you talk about some of the other uh, big figures of of this time. And they represent competing ideas, right? Uh, that Daniel Webster is putting forth this idea of constitutional nationalism. Uh, the, the three that I think of always together, um, and you write about others as well. You know, Clay, Calhoun, and Webster together. They all, they all were had a burning ambition, right, for the presidency. They, each of them never made it, but uh, but each had an outsized influence. 
Yes, that's that's true. I mean, uh, Calhoun was sort of seen as the as the spokesperson of the South. Clay is the spokesperson of the West, and Webster was certainly the, the spokesperson and the conscience of New England. Um, and uh, of course, the big dividing issue for them was the question of slavery. Um, Cal, uh, Calhoun wanted to be able to to see slavery ex- expand into the Western territories. Clay resisted the expansion of, of, of slavery, as did Webster. And Webster was the most um, outspoken opponent of slavery. Uh, he his career kind of was launched on his opposition to slavery and his opposition to the War of 1812. Uh, he famously condemned not just slaveholders, but even his own constituents who profited from slavery in the South. Um, and so um, these three guys, uh, you know, when people talk about the Great Triumvirate, it, it, it's not that they sat around a card table um, uh, uh, making deals all the time. Um, they were, you know, they were all uh, rivals. Um, but their rivalry, and this I think is another important point, uh, their rivalry was a, was a kind of civil rivalry. Uh, it wasn't the kind of nasty politics we see today. These were guys who were capable of sitting down, having a conversation where they each had very different ideas about the country's future, and they were able to strike a deal. That's the quality that I think is so missing in statesmen today, the failure to be able to sit down and compromise and find some consensus position. The fact that we've demonized each other so much in our politics uh, is, is, is a really uh, perhaps the most troubling aspect of our politics today. Uh, so in that way, I guess politics today worse than, than then, although uh, then it was very polarized, right? Yes, that's the point. It was extremely polarized. Uh, the country had you know, very different views on the question of slavery and the question of the rights of indigenous nations. Um, and, and yet, they were able to strike deals because they understood that in democracy, sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And if everybody goes away unhappy, that probably means you have a, as good a bargain as you're going to get. Uh, they understood that part. I don't know why we forgot that, but we seem to have forgotten it. And, and it's possibly because of the process by which um, politicians have so gerrymandered the country that um, you basically only have to win your party's primary. You don't have to appeal to people in the middle anymore. And also the fact that we have, um, uh, we, we have so much money in politics now um, and and the, what drives that money uh, is an appeal to the most extreme positions. So the more extreme you are, the more the more you're unwilling to compromise, the more money you're likely to raise. And so politicians don't seem to be interested any longer in getting anywhere and accomplishing anything. They seem to be more interested in just getting reelected. And I think that's a terribly unfortunate development. Let's take another break. Come back with our last uh, segment. The uh, author Joel Richard Paul is uh, author most recently of Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. When we come back, I want to talk about the Compromise of 1850, which uh, you know, Webster could see this coming, I think, and it did, did destroy his career, but he, he felt it was necessary. Um, 
and I, you, you have a kind of a, a different viewpoint than I've uh, seen it before. Um, that uh, you know the, the compromise of 1850 was kind of useless. Uh, you have a different view. We'll we'll get to that after the uh, break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Joel Richard Paul, author of several books. Latest is Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. And that's out and available now. You can find uh, him at joelrichardpaul.com, by the way. Um, so before we get to the Compromise of 1850, I wanted to have you talk about Webster the Man. We did, Always with these public figures, we, we have the icon. Um, what, tell us about the man. Webster, as you said, uh, was the greatest orator of his time. Uh, he was a, a congressman. Uh, he was a senator from Massachusetts. Um, uh, he uh, was also twice the Secretary of State and four times a presidential candidate. Uh, from about 1812 to his death in 1852, for 40 years, he was at the absolute center of uh, American politics. And he was seen during that time, as this sort of godlike figure. He was called Godlike Daniel. But he wasn't very godlike in his personal affairs. He um, probably had too great a fondness for women and, and wine and money. Um, he had a lot of um, uh, affairs that uh, were subject of uh, speculation and innuendo. Um, he took large amounts of money from men who had business with the government um, or who wanted favors from the government. Um, and he also was um, uh, someone who had a fondness for liquor, and towards the end of his life he really ended up as a, as a drunk. Um, but that was also partly because of the Compromise of 1850. Let me just read this. Uh, this is near the end of the book, um, you, you write, The life of every great figure ends in tragedy, but the particular tragedy of Webster's life was also an American tragedy. Webster's whole career stood for the proposition, liberty and union, one and inseparable. But in 1850, he was forced to conclude that the union could only continue if human liberty were sacrificed. So tell us what the Compromise of 1850 was and did. So, in 1850, California wanted to enter the Union. This was after the war uh, with Mexico, where we had conquered huge portions of the Western Territory, uh, including Utah. Uh, and um, the question was whether this land would, be, would remain free or whether it could also um, uh, be open to slavery. Um, the Californians did not want to have slavery. Um, but the South was worried that if California entered the Union as a free state, that that would uh, change the balance in the Senate, because there were equal numbers of senators from free states and slave states. So the South threatened to secede um, if the West were not open to slavery. And so Henry Clay and Daniel Webster worked at a compromise. The compromise that Clay proposed was that you would reserve California as a free state, and that the Western states, nothing would be decided, but the implication was that they would remain free. Uh, and uh, in exchange, um, the northern states would agree to enforce the fugitive slave law, which they had never done before. The Constitution specifically provides that the states had to return fugitive slaves, but the North had ignored that fact. Northern 
uh, courts were unwilling to enforce slavery. So what the fugitive slave law that Henry Clay proposed did was to establish federal magistrates who would actually enforce the fugitive slave law. So if you were a uh, putative slaveholder, uh, you could claim that some African-American was your uh, slave. And um, that person would then be brought before a federal magistrate, and the federal magistrate could order the return of that person to slavery without regard for any due process. There was no trial. There was no, there was no determination of facts by any uh, jury of your peers. There was just a federal magistrate who was there, and the federal magistrate would be paid more money if they agreed to send the slave back than if they... Did did not if they if they if they freed the person, then that person they would the magistrate would get paid half of what they would get paid if they returned them to slavery. Now some of the people who were captured weren't even had never been slaves. They were just African Americans who were kidnapped essentially and sent back to slavery. So this was this was an appalling compromise in that respect. But the compromise was the only way in which to preserve the union. It was quite clear at the time that the South had every intention of seceding if, the, uh, if there was no compromise. And, and everything turned on Webster, because Webster, as the leading spokesperson of the North, as the guy who was known as, an, as a fiery opponent of slavery, if he endorsed the compromise, then the other Northern politicians would follow, and the compromise would be upheld. But if he spoke out against the compromise, then the union would have ended. Uh, And so Webster gives this famous speech on the floor of the Senate. Uh, And he knows, he knows that this speech will end his political career. Uh, He knows that he's basically, uh, he's, he's cutting his own throat politically. But he knows that this is the right thing to do to save the Union. And the reason that Webster is so committed to saving the Union at the expense of enforcing the fugitive slave laws is that Webster knows that the Union is the only vehicle for ending slavery ultimately. That if the South secedes, slavery will be ingrained in a a Southern Republic, and there will be no way for the North to end slavery. The way to end slavery was to preserve the Union. And so Webster stands up and he gives this speech. And he he points to his own northern colleagues in the Senate. And he says, and he he, he endorses the the compromise. And he says that these people, that some people deal with morals as with mathematics. And they think that what is right may be distinguished from what is wrong with all the precision of an algebraic equation. If they detect a spot on the sun... They think that a good reason why the sun should be struck down for heaven, from heaven. They prefer the chance of running into utter darkness to living in heavenly light, if that heavenly light be not absolutely without any imperfection. And so he endorses the compromise, and, and that is the end of his political career. But it saves the Union for 10 years. And uh, he was right to the end of his political career, right? And and uh, vitriol from former allies. Uh, uh, <laughs> you're right that John Leaf, Greenleaf Whittier uh, penned a poem. I, I think we, we know this line, when faith is lost, when honor dies, the man is dead. I didn't realize he was directing that to Webster. 
Absolutely. No, everybody understood that. And, and uh, um, you know, perhaps even more painful, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a great, great uh, Webster supporter, uh, Emerson had, had said, referred to Webster as the completest man. Uh, uh, Emerson uh, wrote that um, liberty in, in, in the mouth of Daniel Webster was like love in the mouth of a courtesan. Mm. Wow! And 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 he was just uh, he was trashed. Uh, Theodore Parker, uh, when Webster died, gave this eulogy, which is which was republished as a book, where he just basically took Webster apart because of the compromise. Because everyone saw this as a betrayal. This man had had condemned slavery, and now he's endorsing the fugitive slave laws. How can this be? Um, so I teased this before, before the last break, this was, uh, I found very fascinating. I've always thought, well, you know, you kick the can down the road about 10 years, right? But, uh, but you, you say, no, this is critical to buy those 10 years with this compromise. Yeah, I think, I think the compromise of 1850, as distasteful as it was, as difficult as it, as it would be for us today to understand the motivation in endorsing the future slave laws, it was absolutely essential, and here's why. Uh, in 1850, the president of the United States is Millard Fillmore, uh, and other than the fact that he had the funniest first name of any president of the United States, Millard Fillmore did not have any distinguishing characteristics that would have made it possible for him to have saved the Union. He was no Abe Lincoln, in other words. Millard Fillmore could not possibly, he didn't have the political influence, he didn't have the intelligence, he didn't have the strength of character to wage a war to restore the Union the way Abe Lincoln did. Secondly, during that 10-year period, um, the Southern economy slowed down, the Northern economy took off, and in particular, the arms industry in the South basically disappeared, it dried up. Uh, there were virtually no armaments manufacturers left in the South by the time they declared independence, declared uh, uh, the Confederacy in 1860, 1861. Uh, in, in 1850, in 1850, all of the arms manufacturers began to prosper in the North, and Connecticut in particular became one of the centers of arms manufacturing in the world so that the military advantage the North enjoyed by 1860 was vastly greater than it had been in 1850. Another factor here uh, is the fact that you have Northerners for the first time experiencing slavery in a way that they had not before. So for most people living in Massachusetts or New York, New Hampshire, Slavery was uh, a, a concept. It was something that happened in a foreign nation. It was something that happened far, far away from us. It wasn't something that happened in your own backyard. And when, when African Americans were dragged out of their businesses in the streets of Boston in manacles and put on boats and sent back to the South where they were tortured and enslaved, that really outraged Northerners. White Northerners suddenly became vehemently anti-slavery. They hadn't been in 1850. In 1850, the Free Soil Party, for example, which was the anti-slavery party in 1850, 
Free Soil Party only got 10% of the vote. By 1860, the Republicans, which are the anti-slavery party that succeeds, that, that succeeds from the uh, Free Soil Party, the Republican Party gets a majority of the vote. I mean, the Republicans win. So, so the, North, the, the North became much more anti-slavery and much more unified and willing, therefore, to fight for the Union and, the, and to end slavery. And finally, you have all of the other events that occur in the 1850s, uh, Kansas-Nebraska Act, Dred Scott, John Brown, all of these things that increase the, the drive a wedge between the North and the South. And they make it much more possible for Abe Lincoln to take power in 1860 and to fight to save the Union. That would not have happened in 1850. Hmm. Well, we reached uh, the, the end of our time here. Uh, much else, of course, in the book. And, uh, pick up the book. Uh, a lot of great things there. Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. The author of Joel, the author is Richard, uh, Joel Richard Paul. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. It's always great to talk to you. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today. We'll go out as we do on Thursdays with Leo T. and Skywatcher. Many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T. here as we look up. Early on Tuesday, November 8th, the moon will pass through the Earth's shadow, creating a total lunar eclipse. All or most of it will be visible from the entire U.S. It begins in the Mountain West shortly after 1 a.m. in the morning. That's 1 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) It's maximum by 4 a.m. and receding by about 6. Once again, the moon will be fully immersed in the shadow, beginning the total eclipse. Also in the night sky, Jupiter still hangs big in the southeast. And a couple of days ago, a little magic as a couple of black shadows of Galilean moons, Ganymede and Europa, cast shadows onto the face of the planet early in the dusk. Wish I had been looking. I I wasn't aware of it at the time. Vega is the brightest star up high toward the west these evenings. Vega is 25 light years away, so the light left Vega 25 years ago. Vega is a fast-rotating, beautiful blue star, larger and hotter than the sun. And put this one on your calendar. At pre-dawn, November 11th, the moon will be in between Mars and bluish Inneth, very close together. The second brightest star of sparkly Taurus the Bull, a fun region. And further out in space exploration, well, actually on Earth, NASA's rolling out the Artemis moon rocket in preparation for a November 14th launch attempt. Following the last rollback to the Vehicle Assembly Building on September 26th to shelter the SLS rocket from the Hurricane Ian, NASA engineers have been testing the reaction control system on the twin solid rocket boosters, as well as the installation of flight batteries, and those components are ready for flight, NASA reports, so hopefully weather and other variables on board will have the Artemis on the way to the moon and back on the 14th for a big trip way out and around the moon and back. NASA prepares to say goodbye to the InSight lander that has been exploring and relating amazing information back to Earth. The InSight's data has yielded details about Mars's interior layers, its liquid core, and the surprising variable remnants beneath the surface of its mostly extinct magnetic field, weather on this part of Mars, and recording lots of Mars quake activity. So thanks to InSight and its incredible InSight team. Check out a photo of a crater that InSight took from last year, just discovered the other day in the data of boulder-sized blocks of water ice on the rim of an ancient impact crater. It's on the Skywatcher site. Credit NASA, Caltech, and the University of Arizona. 
As many cultures, one sky. In a recent article in the International Journal of Archaeology, former director of the Hanson Planetarium and many other things, Vondell Chamberlain, who I had the pleasure of working with in the mid-80s in his article, Conscious of the Cosmos, think about Mother Earth and Father Sky writes, Standing alone, eyes outward toward a dark, cloudless sky, scattered thick with stars, our minds fill with questions. What are we in this immensity? Two urgencies tug at our being. The beauty of what we behold overwhelms us, but we feel so tiny within this vastness. What can we do? Do we have responsibility? Can we make a difference in this reality? Yes, we are an example of the universe being able to contemplate itself. What more might be expected of us? A voice seems to echo from those distant walls of space and time as the thought enters our minds. Are you ready? Are you willing to accept the awareness that you are the conscious of the cosmos? The concept of Mother Earth and Father Sky seems to go back as far as we can go in sorting out the origins of human thoughts and beliefs about ourselves and our planet and about the inspirational canvas revealed overhead at night. Indeed, it seems likely that the inception of concepts of Earth as Mother and Sky as Father came from the deepest feelings and knowledge of the earliest humans long ago. We are the children of Mother Earth and Father Sky. Von Dell relates this in three stories from Native America, and we will delve into these in coming weeks, so keep on wondering as we look up, look around, and get just a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator stations statewide and streaming live on upr.org.